And for the rest of you who want to find your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Well, I, uh, I just thought I'd tell you that I have got an idea that I think could advance civilization or at least uh, make a bo- eating a box of chocolates fair. And I thought I'd just, as we get started, I thought I'd just tell you about this here. Um, we had this little scenario in our home here not too long ago. I'm sure you're going to be related to this. We Somehow we acquired this box of candy and maybe it had something to do with Valentine's Day or Valentine's Day sales. I don't know. But anyway, it showed up after dinner, got out there and opened it up and, you know, everybody's all excited to make your selection. And you kind of look there and, you know, you got all these little chocolates there and they're all in that little brown little wax paper there. And, and it's kind of a guessing game. I mean, you, it's either going to be great or you're going to gag. One of the two, right? So it's getting kind of passed around. My wife goes first, right? Uh, ladies go first. She, she makes her selection. You know, we're all kind of watching. She bites in. Oh, it's caramel and all that great chocolate stuff, man. I'm like, touchdown. She got the one I wanted. Okay. So I'm looking at the shape of hers and what that all look like here because, you know, everybody's kind of making their pick. I make mine. I try to pick one just like Karina's and, and I'm getting ready for chocolate heaven, right? And I bite in and it's, that, it's got that orange stuff in it. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, what in the world? I mean, what a, that's just a rotten trick, okay? You got these board candy makers, you know, I'm like, well, I'm getting tired of the chocolate stuff. And they make these concoctions that are just, no one likes them. They don't go with anything. I mean, if I wanted, if I wanted an orange, I'd have got one, okay? I pulled one right out of the fridge there. Look at it. I wanted chocolate. And yet, uh, no, it, it looked like chocolate. And certainly there was some chocolate on the outside, but you bite into it and it's terrible. Now, this is my idea. I think that they should, on every box of chocolate, put a warning, a full disclosure, okay? You know, kind of warning. You know, consuming this product may lead to a violent reaction, okay? And that's part one. I got a second part. I think this would be super helpful for all of you great candy makers out there or listening today. The the wrapper should match the color of what's inside, okay? So if it's chocolate, it should be brown. And if it's orange, you put an orange wrapper. If it's red or purple, that's the ultimate worst one. Okay? It should be purple so you don't like, oh, I don't know what to do. And, it just, and then you're like, well, there's probably purple inside. It's got the purple wrapper. That would save a lot of problems. So that's kind of my idea that I'd like to pass on to you. Now, Forrest Gump's mother, remember, she's the one that said, remember, Forrest Gump said this, you know, my mom always said, life is like a box of chocolates. You just never know what you're going to get. Well, I'd like to tell you this, that people are like a box of chocolates. You know, they, they, all, they all look really good on the outside, okay? In fact, we take great pride to make ourselves look as good as possible. We do one-hour showers. We do something fancy with whatever hair we have left. You know, maybe you decide, I think I'm going to just shave it all off. You shave, you clean. Women have this makeup magic that they do and like, voila, transform to a princess. You know, just like that. We go through all this work and making ourselves look really good on the outside. And that's great, friends. But you know what's far more important than how beautiful you look on the outside is what's inside. What is going on inside? What are you really like? And that is why Jesus addresses the heart. You know, he doesn't make any statements about looking good or the latest hairstyles or what you should do to make yourself look attractive on the outside. Jesus is always addressing heart issues. In fact, his ministry could be described as one of doing heart surgery. And 
as we've been going through the gospel of Matthew, after Matthew has established that Jesus Christ is indeed God, Matthew chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, he hit chapter 5 and he begins his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And he tells us that we are far more blessed than we could ever imagine because we know Jesus Christ as Lord. Whatever you're going through, if you're suffering, you've got difficulty, hardship, you're, you're experiencing pain, you read the Beatitudes, those, those verses beginning in verse 3 all the way through verse 12, and you find out that you're far more blessed. You have great divine privilege because you're united with Christ. And he has a compelling purpose for you in this life. You see, those whom Jesus draws to himself, he says, come, follow me. And you, by faith, and respond to his call. He's got a purpose for you. You can find it in verses 13 through 16. You are to be his salt on the, in the earth. And you are furthermore to be his light. You reflect the love and the life and the light of Christ. He doesn't say that you should become like this. He says what? You are. If you are mine, says Christ, it is true of you that you are salt and it's true of you that you are light. Now, you can mix your salt and you can kind of mix it with the things of the world, like you can mix it with gypsum and it loses its effectiveness and taste. And let me let me just remind you from last week. You mix your life in with the values and the principles and the ideals of this world. And you as a Christian, though you are salt, have lost your effectiveness. So when you kind of make some statement that you're a Christian or you're trying to talk to someone other about the value of Christ and they kind of like, what are you talking about? Because they don't see that reality in your life. Jesus never intended that. Furthermore, he wants you to shine your light. Don't put it under a basket. We're meant to radiate the glory of God, not just here on Sunday morning. As powerful as our worship time was, as we just sang songs of praise. God wants the worship of him going on Monday morning at work, Tuesdays with our families, in our homes, in our schools. We're his light and we're meant to shine. And so what Jesus is going to do in order for that to be the continual growing reality in his people, he is going to what he's, we're going to call conduct heart surgery. He's going to go after what is inside. You see, we truly live when we really know Christ as Lord. It's not just words that we say. He's everything to us. We yield our life to him. We gladly take our place as a servant, as a slave, and he is the glorious master. And let me tell you why Jesus can transform our life. It begins in chapter 5, verse 17. He's going to tell us why we know he can really transform our life. He says, look at verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Christ came to fulfill the law and the prophets, and he is going to do it for us. I don't want you to miss this, because this verses 17 through 20 is really key to understanding the whole Sermon on the Mount. Christ makes this radical, revolutionary statement. He says, I'm going to fulfill these things. I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. The law, speaking of the first five books of the, of the scripture, the Torah, the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. Christ says, I have come to fulfill all that was spoken of, all that righteousness. You see, God gave us the law. Okay, those first five books. 
the law of God was meant to point out to God's people how to live as those separated unto him. It showed the way. God says, this is how I want my people to live. I want you to be distinct from the rest of the world. I want you to be dedicated and set apart to me. And so he spelled it out with great detail. That is why the people absolutely loved the law of God. But the law had other effects, too. Not only did it show the way to live, in our attempts to do so, and this is true of the people of Israel, they saw that they simply could not. The law showed just how sinful people are. God says, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Honor God. And guess what? We simply are unable to do it. And so the law's effect was this. Not only did it show how sinful we are, but it was meant to drive us to God, to his mercy, to his grace, and especially his Messiah, his Savior. It showed our great need for a Savior. And so our sin, once we come to understand how sinful we are, what it does is it drives us to God's Savior. And so when Jesus says, verse 17, don't think that I came to abolish the law, to do away with it. I came to fulfill it. And this is how he fulfills it. That word fulfill means to fill out or to complete. He First of all, he's going to obey it perfectly. Not only the letter of the law, but its divine intent. And he is also going to explain, to instruct us, what God fully intended by the law that he gave. So he's going to fulfill it by obeying it and teaching it. He's also going to fulfill it by one day fulfilling all the types and all the prophecies made about him. Remember he said, I came to fulfill the law, all its righteous demands, and the prophets, how they spoke of his coming. Every single aspect from where he would be born, that he'd be born of a virgin, everything about his life, and between his first coming and his second coming, Jesus Christ is going to fulfill absolutely every single detail of what is written about him. And furthermore, when he says, I've come to fulfill, it means that because he has completed all righteousness, he did everything that God intended the law to do, he is perfectly righteous, He is going to transfer his righteousness and allow us to share in it. This is one of the most marvelous truths about Christianity. Jesus Christ, when he came, he absolutely completely fulfilled everything that the law demanded. Not only the letter of law, but its full intent. And he took his righteousness and he imputed it to his people. He transferred it to our account and at the same time, Our sin, all the heinous rebellion against God, self-centeredness, he actually transferred and placed upon Christ who pays the penalty for our sin. If you want a great scripture passage that just kind of encapsulates that, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, And he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Is that not fascinating and fabulous for us? Christ has taken our sin and he has paid the full penalty for us. And so everything that the sacrificial system pointed from in the Old Testament law, they're making sacrifices all the time, not only in the Day of Atonement, but they're continually bringing sacrifices for their sins. Christ fulfills it. When the law speaks of events in history that are taking place that picture or are a type of Christ, Christ 
absolutely fulfills those things. And he is the one who perfectly obeys everything that God intended. And so when Jesus says, hey, do not misunderstand me. I am not calling you to abandon the law, nor am I saying, hey, that's totally over and that doesn't matter anymore. You just do what I have to say. No, he says, far from it. I have come to completely fulfill it. And it's fulfilled in me. And let me just tell you how you and I relate to the law. You see, for we, we as Christians, we don't live as lawless ones. Some people misunderstand. They're like, well, all right, I see what Jesus said. He fulfilled it. And so that means that I can go and do whatever I want. I am emancipated and free. And grace covers anything I do, whether it's good or sin. That's actually not the case. We have been freed from the law. That law was like Galatians talked about. It's like a tutor. It leads us to Christ. And yes, we are no longer under the law as originally established, established, but rather we are even under a greater bond under the law of Christ. We want what he wants. And we want to experience all that he has for us. And so we are under the law of Christ. And so this is what Jesus says. Don't think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill. And look, verse 18, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. If you want to know what did Jesus believe about the Bible, you might want to put a little mark by verse 18. He said absolutely every single detail that is written I have come to fulfill. You see, the, the, a yod, when he says about the smallest letter, in Hebrew, the, small, the smallest letter is called a yod. It's, it's very similar to like an apostrophe. It makes a yus sound. And then the, when he says about the, even the smallest stroke, it's a serif. It's like a little amendment, just a little hook that they put on certain letters. It is absolutely minute. The best English equivalent would be like the dot on the I. Is that important? Yes. If you want to understand what Jesus believes about the word of God, he says every single detail is important. You see, his inspiration, the fact that God has given us his word and the word's authority includes every aspect of the word. And so some people wrongly say, well, scripture just just contains the word of God. Okay, and there's what God wants us to know. It's contained in there, but not every word. That's that's certainly not important. Not according to Jesus. If you want a statement about inerrancy, that the word is without error and that it is infallible, that it can be completely trusted, just look at what Jesus has to say. Every single detail, yod, every little dot on the eye, it's going to be fulfilled. And this divine word that God has given us, that Jesus says is going to be fulfilled, you know what he's going to say? I want it also Fulfilled in you. So let me just tell you what we can learn about this. Christ came to fulfill the law and the prophets for us. He came to do it. But don't just stop there. Not only is he com- he's going to fulfill it for us, he's going to actually fulfill it in us. Sometimes people just get off the train right there. Praise God, he's done it, and I can go live however I want. That is actually to miss why he fulfilled it. Yes, he's going to establish all righteousness, but he actually wants that actually lived out in our life. You see, we're going to discover that we possess Christ's righteous standing. His righteousness has been transferred to us, but we are also to practice 
right living or righteous living. God fully intends that his people are holy. And so what happens is that our relationship with God, it draws us to his word and to his holiness. And our relationship with Christ enables us to address the heart issues in our behavior. And so look what he says in verse 19. He says, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. For whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is accentuating how important his word is. And he says, if you are teaching that you don't have to to annul, has the idea that you can ignore or you can modify or water down or even disobey. He says that person will be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. On the other hand, those who live it and teach it are going to be considered great. Now, when reading verse 19, you and I might go, you know, if you don't follow what he has to say, you should be out of the kingdom. But how do we make entrance into the kingdom of God? Is it by following the law or even the word of God? Is that how we become a Christian? No, we become a Christian on the basis of what? Faith. It is our relationship with Christ, believing, trusting in him that brings us into the kingdom of God. And so he says, that's why he says, if you teach something different, if you're teaching people to annul them, disobey my word, water it down, you don't really teach it. He says, you'll be considered least in the kingdom. On the other hand, this is the ideal. What does he want? He wants his people, look what the text says. He wants them to keep them. That's the idea of living them out. You're holding to them. You're following them. And you teach them. This is the person that is great in the kingdom of heaven. You see, God wants us to practice his word and to preach it. He wants us to live it out. And he wants us us to teach it and preach it to the people in our life. That's what he intends. You see, Christ has not only fulfilled all righteousness for us. He wants us to experience his righteousness. He wants it lived out in our life. You want a great Old Testament text on this? Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. This is what Ezra did. He set his heart to study the law of God and to practice it. And to teach his statutes throughout all Israel. That's what you did. You studied it. You live it. You preach it. You teach it to the people. And that there is no better pattern for how do you develop and mature spiritually than that. You study it. You set your heart to study and understand what does this mean? How does this apply? You live it. And so when you speak, your life actually has some authority, some backing to it. That's what God intended. He has always intended that in the Old Testament. And Jesus makes it absolutely clear. This is what I want from my people. They keep the word. They live it and they teach it. And the people that do that, he says, they're going to be great in the kingdom of heaven. And so there is going to be some sort of ranking. There's going to be some sort of divine privilege. And we don't know exactly what this looks like. But if if you were one who's always ignoring God's word and nulling it, not keeping it, could care less about it. You never pass it on to any of your children. You could care less about instructing anybody else about it. If you have faith in Christ on the basis of what Jesus says, you will be in the kingdom. You will will have some sort of lesser position. And that makes sense. Why would you trust someone with greater privilege and responsibility when they're not even trustworthy with what you have given them? But those who fully obey it, follow it, teach it, live it, they're going to have a great position. And so... Jesus says, 
everything is going to be accomplished. I want you to live it and teach it. And then he says in verse 20, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, verse 20, I was kind of surprised. No one like startled or anything like that. But let me assure you, the Pharisees and scribes that had gathered and are trying to figure out who is this Jesus and is he the Messiah? Everybody keeps saying so. They would have been shocked at the statement. Because, you see, they had made a whole, given their whole life to follow the letter of the law. And not only did they want to follow the letter of the law, they had this whole massive system called oral tradition that they taught and they were trying to follow and get all the people to teach. And so this is how it worked. They themselves couldn't really do it. And they were always thumbing their nose and looking down at everybody else who couldn't follow it as well. And it was kind of this man-made righteousness, okay? And so when Jesus says, I just want you to understand one thing. For I say to you, verse 20, unless your righteousness, the rightness in your life, surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're like a lot of people today. They were trying really hard to look good on the outside, like that box of chocolate. They tried to look righteous. They were following rituals. They felt like if I did go through these rituals and these sacrifices and have these ritual washings and I participated in religion, that that made me right with God. But that never makes you right with God because it is a heart issue. And if you're going to have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you have to have Christ because he is the one who fulfills it. He fulfills all righteousness for us and he intends to do it in us. And Jesus sets himself up as the divine authority as God. You see in verse 20, he says, for I say to you, Jesus is equating his words with the scripture that he has already given. He says, I say to you, as God, your righteousness has to be greater than that of the Pharisees and the scribes. And so what he's going to be doing now at the, for the whole rest of the chapter, beginning in verse 21, he's going to give us illustrations of how our relationship with Christ cultivates holiness in life. He's going to give six examples. He could give more, but boy, six ought to communicate the message of what he's doing. What he's going to do is he's going to give the intent that God had that was behind the law. He's going to give six examples. He could have given seven, eight, nine, ten, but he gives us six And this is the underlying principle. He wants us to seek and apply God's heart intention to his instruction, not merely merely the letter of it. He wants us to follow certainly what he says in these six these illustrations. But this is to be our approach to God's word. Lord, what did you intend? What do you want me to do? How is my heart to respond to what you've written? And so he is going to establish this pattern. And I want you to take careful note of the pattern that he establishes beginning in chapter 5, verse 21 through 48. You find this for each of the six illustrations. He's going to, first of all, state the commandment of the law. Okay, you have heard it said or the ancients were told you he's going to state the commandment of the law. And then he's going to show the intent of God. He's going to show the heart behind the law. And then the third aspect, what this does is it solidifies our need for Christ. As you go through this, every single one of us is going to have the experience of going through heart surgery like, oh, total failure, completely inadequate, 
I simply could not do this. And I haven't. That's why I need Christ. And the first example, and that's the one we're going to focus on today, is the one that he gives the longest because he's kind of setting the pattern for the rest of it. It's not that it's necessarily more important than the others. He's just trying to show by example of how deeply the intent was of God's word. You see, Jesus is going to address heart issues because he wants us to live as his light and his salt and experience his life in this world. Okay? Let me, let me just say something before we start heart surgery. Right now, everybody's kind of like, eh, I think I'm going to make it through this sermon. Okay, unscathed. Okay? Do you know why Jesus addresses heart issues? Because he does not want his people being superficial. He doesn't want you staying in a state of immaturity. He doesn't want you going through life underdeveloped or half-baked. He fully intends that you grow in his grace and you experience the fullness of his life. God wants us to experience the joy of knowing him. And that's why he addresses our heart. And the very first heart issue that he's going to address is the heart issue that can move us to destroy others. Beginning in verse 21 through 26. Look what he says. Verse 21. Okay, right now, it's total silence because Jesus said, your righteousness has to be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. Okay, everybody's like, no one can be greater than them. What? And then he says, let me, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now, when Jesus says this, they're very familiar with this. This is the sixth commandment. You shall not commit murder. Now, if it's one thing the scribes and the Pharisees felt they were always 100% completely not guilty of, and that would be not committing murder, okay? I mean, we may have done some other things, but one thing we haven't done is we haven't killed anybody, okay? And so they're thinking, well, we are 100% on that one. No problem whatsoever. Uh, murder, by the way, first crime ever committed in the world? You know, it was. Homicide. Yeah. Cain rose up and he what? He killed his brother Abel. How's that for the first family? I mean, it didn't take very long for sin and all of its wickedness to manifest itself in society. In fact, murder has been with us throughout every single generation. You cannot pick up a newspaper without saying, like, not again. And God takes, by the way, murder very seriously. Okay? Premeditated murder, according to the, the Sixth Commandment, um, and like the book of Numbers, if that was committed, you should, that person should be executed. Why does God say that? Because for this reason, man was created in the image of God. Man reflects God's likeness, however imperfect it is. And if you kill or take one of those lives that God created, doesn't matter how wicked that person may have even been. If you murder them, God says your life is to be taken. Now, the Jews are kind of thinking, okay, we're doing all right. We haven't murdered anybody, okay? Well, Jesus says, let me tell you the intent, the full heart behind that law. Jesus sets himself up as the authority. Verse 22, he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Ooh. Now, good thing none of us have been angry, right? Okay, Jesus says, if you're angry with your brother, you are guilty, you're guilty before the court. 
And then he says, you're still not understanding. Whoever says to his brother, you, you good for nothing. You shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Okay. He's speaking of the Sanhedrin. The Romans, although they're running things over there in Israel, the Romans allowed the Jews to keep their highest court. It's the equivalent to to our Supreme Court to handle all these Jewish matters. As long as it it didn't impinge upon Roman law, they'd let the Jews do whatever they wanted. They just said, you just can't kill anybody. Okay, if there's some killing to be done and execution that is needed, we'll take care of that. Thank you very much. But if you have some Jewish matters you want to settle We'll let you keep your Supreme Court, your high court. Jesus says, you say to someone, you good for nothing. You are guilty. You shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And then look at this. Whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Whoever says you fool, you empty headed one, you you are guilty enough to go to the to hell itself. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's, he, what he's, he's outlining here is he's kind of outlining a system here. If you're, if you're saying to your brother you're good for nothing, if you're angry with them, you're, that, that word good for nothing, it's just one word, raka, it means like empty-headed. The Jews took their names very seriously. To call someone a name is to strip someone of their dignity. Their names meant everything to them. Just like you, do you like it when someone takes your name and mangles it? Or calls you a name, there's something inside us that just reacts to that. Because our name is, is part of our identity. It actually speaks of our character. If you get your name smeared, it affects you adversely. Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to take human dignity far more than beyond just murder and killing people. I want you to take it in how you treat people. And if you call someone empty-headed, or you call them... Uh, if you say you fool, the word there is moros. It's where we get our word moron from. Someone who does stupid things. If you call someone an idiot or stupid or a moron, he says you're guilty enough to go to the fiery hell. Literally, he says Gehenna. And, uh, and what he's speaking of, everyone would be very familiar with this. In the city of Jerusalem, in the south and the southwest, there is this valley. It's called the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. And what, what it was was their garbage dump. And so they would throw all their refuse out of the city and all be taken to the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. And they just had this fire going. I don't know if you ever smelled garbage burning. Okay, it's got a nasty smell. And so the the fires were always going. They're always burning all their refuse, all their garbage. If If the Romans executed prisoners, they'd throw those bodies and they'd just throw them in Gehenna. They'd just throw them in that Valley of Hinnom and they'd just burn them too. And so the Jews started referring to hell as Gehenna. And they had this visual illustration. It was their burning garbage dump. And what Jesus is saying, if you in your heart and you're angry with people and you're calling people you idiot or you good for nothing or you fool, you moron, you are guilty enough to go to hell. Now, I'm sure everybody was listening to Jesus at this point, but Jesus isn't done. He wants us to know how deep he intends his word to go in our heart. He says, look, verse 23. You, therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Verse 24, leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. He's saying, don't think that if you got evil running through your heart, 
You've been running around calling people names, assassinating people's character. You're on the warpath with people. You've let your anger go out of control. And then you're going to show up at the temple and going to sauce yourself and kind of make yourself feel good. Or you're going to appease God and give some sort of offering to him. Whether that be singing songs of praise or bringing some sort of financial gift. Like, okay, God, let's not think about what I did this past week. But how about you be real happy with what I'm doing for you now? And in this gift that I'm bringing to you. God says, no, you missed it. This is a heart matter for me. I'm after your heart. I want you holy and pure from the inside out. I don't want people jumping around doing circus tricks like the Pharisees and scribes, kind of following the little law to the letter of the law outside. I want your heart and I want you living it out. And so he says, no, you leave your altering before the altar and go first. You see this verse 24? Be reconciled to your brother. If there is a problem and you are aware of it, the onus of responsibility is for you to go and talk to that person. Try to work it out. Try to figure out what's wrong. If there's forgiveness that needs to be asked for or extended, I want you to do it. Christ will give you the grace. I want this to be reality in your life. I want you to be a people in love. And he says, verse 25, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way. So that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into the prison. If you've got someone that's got an issue with you, okay, and there's there is a problem and they're going to take you off to court. The heart of my people, the heart of the people in the kingdom, those who are blessed, those who are salt, those who are light. You know what you're doing? You're running alongside and say, hey, listen, let's work this out. Don't think like, well, I think I'm right here and we'll let the judge vindicate me. It doesn't always work that way. What Jesus is saying is, I want you addressing those issues. And you try to make it right. Do whatever you can. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way. So that your opponent, verse 25, may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer. And you be thrown into prison. For he says, verse 26, truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid the last cent. What Jesus is saying is address the issue now. So you see what Jesus is doing? He's stating the command of the law. He's giving its full intent. Do you see how much heart God has behind just a few simple words that he gave us? You shall not murder. He wants us not to be angry. He doesn't want us degrading people. We are a people that always seeks for peace. We want love. We want Christ. We want grace. We want to demonstrate that in our lives. And he shows the intent. And what he does is he solidifies our need for Christ. Now, maybe you're not like this guy I was reading about, this Justin John Bowden, 27-year-old guy from Minnesota. And he has what you'd call a little anger problem. And this is, maybe you've read this, this is what happened here. He's actually, he pleaded guilty to fifth-degree assault charges for violently losing his temper. And this is the deal. Uh, he was uh, on his way to an anger management class. He's standing at the bus stop. There was a 59-year-old lady that he didn't think was treating him correctly and giving him the respect that he deserves. He starts verbally assaulting her. She's like, well, I had enough of this. She gets her little purse out there, pulls out her cell phone. She's calling the cops, right? 911. Well, Justin didn't think that was the right thing to do. So what do you do when you're angry? We take matters in your own hands. So he... Punches her right in the face, right there at the bus stop. 
on his way to anger management class right there. And there was the 63 year old guy. And he couldn't believe what's happened. So he tries to intervene, break this up. And Justin, he takes his blue notebook that he's taken to anger management class and he hits that guy right in the head with it. OK, well, he flees the situation. Things have gotten out of hand. He'll find another way to get to anger management class. And when the police show up, you know, they're trying to pick up the people and they're picking up these papers. And lo and behold, they find his name right on there. He was pretty easy to track down and they got him. Now, maybe your anger isn't after that point or. Maybe it is. Either way, God wants to address that now. Jesus' call is, come, follow me. I will transform your life. You are far more blessed than you ever realize when you trust me, and I am your life, and I am your Lord. You are my salt and my light, and I want to address this issue in you. I don't want you to be like that little box of chocolate that looks pretty decent on the outside, but inside you're a mess. You are anger. You are raging. You're causing all sorts of breakdown with your family. You're always fighting with your wife or your husband. You're tearing up your kids. You are an ogre at work. No one can get along. You people are just kind of tolerating you at church or in the community. You have no friends that are your neighbors because of your anger issues. Jesus says, you know what? Today we're going to address that. I want you to experience and to live out the full intent of my word. Not only have I fulfilled all righteousness for you, I intend to do it in you. And so it's going to start with allowing Jesus to control our life. That's why we talk about, Lord, I give you everything. I yield my life to you. You see, God will enable you through him to have what is called self-control. Remember the fruit of the spirit, the fruit that comes from the spirit of God. The final aspect of that is self-control. Self-control is critical for dealing with heart issues, especially that of anger. You know, after the 2010 tragic uh, shooting in Tucson, Arizona, in Scientific American, they had a published an online article, and this was the title of it, What Causes Someone to Act on Violent Impulses and Commit Murder? Interesting. And in that article, they had a University of Michigan professor, social psychologist Richard Nesbitt, who, by the way, is considered the world's greatest authority on intelligence. This is what he had to say. He said that he'd rather have his son be high in self-control than intelligence. According to Nisbet, self-control is the key to a well-functioning life because our brain makes us easily susceptible to all sorts of influences. Watching a movie showing, showing violent acts predisposes, predisposes us to act violently. Even just listening to violent rhetoric makes us more inclined to be violent. And so what God wants to do is bring his presence in your life. Your anger, all those issues you got, don't try to rationalize them. Don't try to deal them on yourself. Give them to God. Weigh your wickedness and your ugliness before him. Say, God, I want you to transform me from the inside out. See, if you have developing anger, it is an indicator that you and I need to pray. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us we shouldn't feel angry, okay? Anger is a human emotion, okay? And just because you feel angry at times doesn't mean like, oh, I'm, sin I'm sinning, I'm sinful, I've missed it, because there's things that are going to make us mad, okay? The issue, though, is that the Bible points out how important it is for us to handle our anger correctly and properly. 
not to indulge these anger, angry feelings that lead to pride, hatred, self-righteousness. Let me give you a great passage on this. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. He says, be angry and yet do not sin and do not let the sun go down upon your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. What he says is he's acknowledging, yes, you will at times be angry. And he says, yet do not let your anger lead you to sin. Do not sin where you're you're taking that anger and you're letting now drive your behavior and your rhetoric and your words and your actions and your attitudes. And he says, and do not let the sun go down on your anger. When we handle our anger correctly, we do whatever we can to resolve those issues before we go to bed. Now, obviously, there's sometimes there's some pretty significant issues and you can't get them fully resolved before you go to bed. But he intends for you to address them. There's a reason why. You see, there's someone, I don't know if you know this, that wants to be a part of your family, your marriage, uh, your business that you got going there. Those folks you see at the hospital there, your doctor, your practice, your school, among your team at work, your household. Satan. He wants space. He wants priority and he wants influence. And that's why the text says, and do not give the devil space or an opportunity in your relationship. How do you give Satan an opportunity to bring wreckage to your home, school, family, our church? You know how he does? You allow your anger to go unchecked. I mean, anger does terrible things to us. It totally gets us going in the wrong direction. Norm Evans, he was an all-pro tackle for the Miami Dolphins for several years. He once confided this. He says, you know, it's really dangerous for a pro football player to get angry, which was news to me when I was reading it. I was like, really? I thought they were just all pretty mad out there. No. He says it's really dangerous for a pro football to get angry. In fact, he says, when, a line, when linemen sustain their most serious injuries, it's when they're angry. And he went on to explain, anger is so harmful in football that if I can get an opposing lineman or an end angry at me, what he'll do is he'll concentrate on beating me and forget to attack the quarterback. And my job is to protect the quarterback. And so he knew that if I could just get this guy mad at me, he'd start doing all the sort of things that would get, make himself injured. OK, he'd hyperextend himself. He would try to do things that are humanly impossible to get at me. And he'd forget about his job, which was what? To tackle the quarterback. Anger does that. Or another guy I read of Bob Hutchins. He's a former judo champion from South Carolina. He's now a missionary down in Mexico. And he says, you know, before I discovered that if you made people angry, it could have an adverse effect on them. I was just an above average judo guy. But once I discovered that if you could make your opponent angry, he says, then I became the champion. I won the championship. You see, what anger does is it. It makes us start making poor decisions. It wounds the people in our life. It has our tongue say things it should never do. It, anger is what causes you and I to overreact. It's a heart issue. It, it causes us to be disciplined too severely. It, it takes us and makes us say things and do things that we otherwise would not do. It's a heart issue. That's why Jesus is addressing it. You know, when we get angry because we're inconvenienced, people don't give us the respect that we think we deserve. We're feeling slighted. We're tired. Things aren't going our way. Friends, these are indicators we need to take this before God. And God can truly transform angry people and make them a people of peace and of love that reflect his light and his salt. And that is what Jesus intends to do. Let's just talk for a minute about anger in your life. 
You know, it's been medically shown anger is the co- a great cause for things like headaches, backaches, allergic disorders, ulcers, high blood pressure, heart attacks. Anger is a poison that kills. You, me, are you angry with someone? See what Jesus said, verse 22, everyone who is angry? Today is the day that we need to address that. If there's someone that you need to talk to, someone you need to forgive, someone you need to ask forgiveness from, Lord, would you please forgive me? Go and approach God, ask him for the grace to do what is needed and to do it. Because Jesus intends that we would fulfill all that he's written. You know, some things that you can do is you could identify your emotion as anger. When you, when, as soon as you experience anger, and this could be this afternoon or tomorrow, whatever, call a spade a spade. Identify that you're angry. Here's something that's also very helpful. Count to ten before you react. And while you're counting, you can actually pray, and you will be surprised how much grief that will spare you from. Don't, like, mad, open my mouth. Mad, close my fist. Don't do that. Anger, one, God help me. Okay, how do you want me to respond to this? Two, and you, be, you watch and see how he changes you. Ask, ask the Lord for strength and for wisdom and see how he will respond. He'll give it to you. Why? Because he wants this, his righteousness fulfilled in your life. And here's something else to do. Rate problems on a scale of one to ten. One meaning, this is not a big deal. I probably won't remember this tomorrow or the next day. And ten is like, there's a nuclear war in my hometown. Okay? And rate it in there. And stop treating things that are a one or a two or a three like they're an eight, nine, or a ten. And what will happen is you'll see things from perspective. You go to God and say, Lord, help me to see, help me to live, and help me to deal with this effectively. And he will. And so Jesus' vision for his people is that you and I have hearts. Hearts that are truly united with his. And we experience his love and extend it. We are his light and we shine it. We are his salt of the earth. People encounter us, even in angry situations, there's like, there's something different about you. And that difference is Jesus. See, we truly live when we really know Jesus as our Lord. And until Jesus is our Lord, we're going to kind of muddle through and we're going to make a mess of a lot of our life's relationships. And the last thing that Jesus wants is for you and I to be like a box of chocolates, like an all candy good on the outside, but inside we're a disaster. No, he intends not only to give us his righteousness, but to accomplish his righteousness in our life. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the power of your word. And Lord, I thank you that you have had this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, recorded for us that we could understand with clarity all that you have for us in Christ. He is our Savior. You've accomplished all things for us in Christ. And you desire to do great things through us because of our relationship with him. And so, Father, if there is someone here today who, as the scripture has made him or her, feel greatly convicted over their sin, perhaps even the sin of just anger that is unchecked, And they would like to, for the first time in their life, experience the joy of salvation and love of Jesus. Would they pray with me and say, Lord, you know all about my sinfulness and self-centeredness. I I recognize anger is a huge issue in my life. In fact, it may be the driving force. And today I turn from my sin and I trust Jesus 
as my Lord and my Savior. I believe that his death on the cross is truly my death to sin. And his resurrection is now my life. And Lord, for all of us, would you give us hearts that are yielded to you, desiring to see you fulfilled, fulfill all that you have written in our life, that we would live these words and teach them, that we might reflect your love, your light, as your salt and light in this earth for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.